Well, hark, the Christmas podcast is here, brimming full of festive cheer. Welcome, podcasters, and welcome my co-host, Kerry. Merry Christmas, Kerry. Merry Christmas, John. Good to see you again. And look, for our festive podcast party, we're joined by all the guests who have appeared on the show over the course of the past year. If you like the ghosts of podcast past, shall we say. Uh, in addition, uh, we have a few surprise uh, visitors as well. So introducing, in order of appearance uh, at today's podcast, Mark Tanner. Mark. Good Merry afternoon. Merry Christmas, John. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas to you too. Catherine Bagg. Catherine? Merry Christmas, John. Or Kath. Catherine Bagg. Uh, uh, we have Charlotte Benton. Hello, Charlotte. Hey, there. Uh, and we have Scott Warren. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, Scott. Tom Wire, ghost of Christmas puns. It truly is the most wonderful time of the year, John. Thank you very much. And last but by no means least, Janelle Chang, a new podcaster. Hello, Janelle. Thank you, John. Merry Christmas. And to you. All right. So, John, uh, have you been getting into the festive spirit this year? No, Kerry. I was in a mediation yesterday. Oh, OK. Well, I, I have. Good. Uh, I've already seen Santa and had my first Christmas do. And we've already started our Christmas movie um, fest. Uh, my, my son and I, we watched Home Alone. It was his first... Um, his first watching of Home Alone, seven-year-old boy, very, very excited by Home Alone. You know when you see someone that is just absolutely cracking up and enjoying it just so amazingly well? It was um, really ra- rather lovely. Reminded yes, me of the basic. reminds me of me watching it. Just makes me worried. That, that's got a lot of pizza, <laughs> if I remember. Is that right? Yes, lots of pizza. So how does good King Wenceslas like his pizza? I do not know. Deep, pan, crisp and even. <laughs> Thank you very much to the cracker uh, manufacturer. All right, well, that sounds like a delightful uh, movie night, uh, Kerry, and rather fitting as well, seeing as our podcast house is bursting uh, with guests, mulled wine and mince pies. Uh, we're still waiting on that pizza delivery, though. Good King Wenceslas is probably tucking in. Right, OK, let's begin and hope that we don't leave anyone behind in our legal escapades today. And we'll see if we can weave in some more festive film fun en route. Before we get started, Kerry, I understand you have organised a bit of fun for us all. Yeah, organised fun, my favourite kind. Uh Um, So as a special treat on today's special edition of the podcast, we will be testing our podcasting family's legal knowledge with a holiday-themed quiz. We know our associates are well adept to lesson us on banking law, but let's see how well they hold up to some SQE-level questions. Uh, Listeners, if you want to join in, then please do grab some paper and a pen and I think John is going to kick us off with our first question. Yes, indeed, uh, I am, Kerry. So the police come knocking on Kevin's door after hearing about his anti-burglar defence system. Now, considering that launching an iron into the face of one of the wet bandits went beyond what was reasonable to protect his property, under what section of the Offences Against the Persons Act 1861 would he most likely be charged if he had legal capacity? Would it be Section 20, inflicting uh, bodily injury with or without a weapon? Would it be Section 18, shooting or attempting to shoot or wounding with intent to do grievous bodily harm? Or would it be Section 47, assault occasioning actual bodily harm? I should say that credit for this one should go to the Oxford University Press blog from whom we have borrowed this quiz question. So what's the verdict? Any, Any starters? Well, going back to law school days, I I reckon the answer is section 20, John. Well, it's funny you should say that, Kerry. The answer <laughs> is indeed section 20 for grievous bodily harm, which is arguably what Kevin inflicted with his series of assaults against the wet bandits using an iron as a weapon. As I say, he wouldn't actually have been charged 
given he was 10. Yeah. Although bizarrely in Scotland, certainly when I read law, uh, age of legal capacity uh, for crime was eight. Oh. Mm. And Kerry, uh, do you have an amusing Christmas quiz question for us as well? I do indeed, John. Um, so question number two. An individual living in the north of a town uh, suffering with a heart condition makes the ill-advised decision to dress up as Santa Claus and steal the Christmas presents from everyone in the town. The victims decide to bring a civil claim in the tort of conversion against the perpetrator of the crime. What type of procedural class action would be available to them? Uh, A, an opt-out collective proceedings order in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, B, a GLO, or C, a CPR 19.8 representative action. Anyone? I'm going to go with representative action, 19.4. Well, technically none of the above, because uh, the reformed villain returns the gifts. Of course. Do we know that? It's the Grinch. John, it's the Grinch. I love that. Cultural reference is fantastic. But if he had not, uh, then then the answer, well, it, it's a little bit tricky, but mm. the, I think the answer would be B. Obviously, it's not suitable for the cat because it's not a competition claim. Um, but with CPR 19.8, uh, that would not be appropriate because the claimants wouldn't have the same interest in the claim, although arguably it could be brought using the bifurcated process. Well, indeed, um, my thought, would have the same interest given their gifts all being linked. Well, the uh, amount of damages would be different, and so it would be the bifurcated process possible uh, under Lloyd and Google. Um, but there we go. Get, ask more Mac- Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on swiftly, uh, let's delve, shall we, into the legal snowfall with our first case. I think Mark Tanner is here to unwrap the intricacies of Russian sanction-related litigation. Thanks, John. Yes, I'm going to share the case of Eurochem, uh, the Russian company against Sokchen and ING, in which uh, the Russian company Eurochem has brought a claim totalling over 212 million euros against the two banks for failing to pay sums due under on-demand bonds. It's actually a case I'm uh, working on, so I'm quite familiar with it. And the two banks in this case have declined to make payments uh, on the basis that doing so would breach international international sanctions because of the claimant's association with the sanctioned individual. So, a few months after initiating the proceedings, the claimant made an application for interim payment under CPR 25.1 for the entire value of its claim to be paid into court or a blocked account. The entire value of the claim sounds like an early Christmas present, Mark. Yes, indeed, Kerry, it would have been. But in good news for banks faced with this sort of rock-on-a-hard-place sanction scenario, the High Court rejected the application entirely. So the banks avoided a nightmare before Christmas. Just a question on that Grinch thing, Kerry. Didn't he abuse his dominant position by using his magic powers to break into the house and therefore couldn't the Competition Appeals Tribunal have taken jurisdiction? I'll take that one away, John, and come back to you. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the banks avoided the nightmare before Christmas. You did there, John. I think they did. Uh, One of the key points of the court centred on the claimant's argument that it would obtain judgment in its favour if the claim went to trial. And so the claimant made this argument in order to satisfy one of the conditions for granting an interim payment under CPR 25.1. However, the court stressed that this was not the forum for a merits argument on the bank's defences, which involve questions of whether performance under the bonds is lawful in the place of performance and questions of validity. It's interesting. So given the focus on the underlying merits, did the claimants make a strikeout application as well? No, and this was a point emphasised by the court in reaching its conclusion. There was no strikeout or summary judgment uh, application uh, before the court. 
Uh, and another point worth mentioning is that the court distinguished the recent decision in Mints uh, versus PJSC National Bank. So at this time of year, that case name makes me think of candy canes. Um, anyway, can you give us a quick reminder about Mints, Mark? Uh, of course. Uh, in Mints, the Court of Appeal held UK sanctions against Russia would not be breached by entering judgment in favour of a sanctioned person. However, that decision was irrelevant to the situation in our case, in Eurochem, where the question of Russian sanctions went to the heart of the bank's substantive defence. So it was a bit of a red herring, the Mints case. Mm. And do you know the uh, etymology, or sorry, the history of the candy cane that Kerry mentioned earlier on? Uh, no, I don't. Do you want to enlighten us, John? Yes, no, I think I did know this. I think that, uh, well, legend has it certainly that the candy cane dates to around about 1670, where German choir masters handed out peppermint sugar to quieten down his rowdy uh, choristers. Uh, the cane shape was intended to represent a shepherd's staff. The Banking Litigation Podcast, education on law and legends. And, and probably the truth. But anyway, uh, with that aside, I was going to ask Mark another question. Uh, in addition to the interim payment application, I understand that the claimant relied on some other bases under um, CPR 25.1. Can, can you tell us a bit more about those, Mark? Of course, John. The claimant tried to argue that the sums claimed in the dispute were relevant property for the purpose of a preservation order, or alternatively, a specified fund that could be secured. But the court took the view that sums claimed as debt or damages, without being identifiable or distinctive, could not fall within either of these categories. It makes sense because I think otherwise it would have meant shoehorning an interim payment application, which had already failed, into another section of CPR 25.1. So taking a step back and considering the exercise of its discretion, the court also highlighted the minimal utility to the claimant in having funds sat in a frozen account, which it still couldn't access or use, and the potential exposure of the banks to criminal penalties in France, Italy and the Netherlands, where the banks were based. That uh, wraps it up quite nicely, Mark. And I understand that we, um, as ever, have a blog post on this decision. We do, and I understand there's a link in the show notes. Wonderful. Well, Mark, you've given us your lesson. Now how about your quiz question? So, <laughs> turning up to your best friend's wife's door unannounced with a series of cards declaring your undying love for her may in some circles be considered romantic. In other circles, it might be considered immoral and disingenuous to your best friend, and in others, it might be considered a little bit creepy. However, if you were arrested by the police for harassment or stalking under the Protection, for, Protection from Harassment Act 1997, which two factors might help ensure you got just a slap on the wrist rather than prosecution? Would it be, you've only turned up once, you were being romantic, or because Juliet, in this case, her name, was smiling and happy to see you? Number one, I'm going for because it would. If you were turned at once, it wouldn't evidence a course of conduct. Very correct, Scott. Well done. There the was course other of creepy conduct. behaviour though over the course of the film. So. We did not have those relevant <laughs> factors at the time. For example, wandering around a wedding, only filming her for the entire show. Exactly. Yes, yes, perhaps. <laughs> if there was a course of conduct that involved wandering around filming her that would uh, classify. But in this case, it was just the ones turning up at the door. Um, and so the course of conduct must comprise two or more occasions according to section 7.3 of the Protection from Harassment Act. And the other two, of the other two factors, any guesses from around the Smiling. The smiling, that's correct, Gary. Harassment includes alarming a person or causing them distress. Yeah, she didn't seem very distressed. She didn't seem very distressed. She seemed fairly happy. 
Mark, I, Mark, I did not know that, but as a fun fact, in Russia, they celebrate Christmas on the 7th of January. So top tip, if you put your turkey on the 25th of December, you won't be rushing around to have it ready for when the family come over. Very good. Thank you, Tom. Yes, Appreciate the tip. Around. It's a pun, rushing around, rushing yeah. around. Yeah. Well, I must, must go now. So. <laughs> right, John. Thank you, uh, Kerry. So as we move into the next phase of our holiday legal feast, we have Catherine Bagg with a sleigh full of legal insight into lender losses and a negligent valuation. Over to you, Catherine. Thanks, John. Today I'm going to have a look at the case of Hope Capital and Alexander Rees Thompson. In this case, a valuer had admitted to negligently overvaluing security for a loan, but the court still dismissed the lender's claim against the valuer because it found that the valuer's duty did not extend to protecting the lender against all foreseeable risks of the valuation being negligent, such as the borrower's conduct and the unpredictable impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now I sense a damaged knee here, Catherine. Is this a, a Samco case? <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. Mm. Um, the Samco principle was the centrepiece of this decision, as expanded upon in Manchester Building Society. And could you just give the, uh, our podcasters a quick reminder of the principles in that case? Of course. In Manchester, the Supreme Court clarified the Samco principle, noting that the scope of duty of care assumed by a professional advisor is governed by the purpose of the duty, judged on an, on an objective basis by reference to the reason why the advice is being given. Therefore, in the case of negligent advice given by a professional advisor, one looks to see what risk the duty was supposed to guard against, and then look to see whether the loss suffered represented the fruition of that risk. And in theory, if not in practice, in theory, no more arbitrary distinctions between information duties and advice duties then. Yeah, exactly right. What we have seen in the case law post-Manchester is the court grappling with establishing the purpose of the negligent advisor's duty. And the present case is a classic example of that, with the court focusing on the purpose of the valuation. Now, the lender argued that the valuation of the security was the sole piece of information it relied upon when deciding to make the relevant loan. <coughs> and that the valuer's responsibility therefore extended to making the decision to lend itself. So it was a no transaction kind of case? Yes. Here there was no doubt about the fact that the valuation was critical, but in the court's view, there was nothing separating this case from an ordinary valuer's negligence case. So the purpose was simply to provide an opinion of the current market value of the property. So you, you mean to protect the lender in relation to the value of the security? Precisely. But this did not extend to protect the lender against all foreseeable risks of entering into the transaction. You see, the loss in, in value of the security was caused by a combination of the acts of the borrower and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the property market. These factors were not connected to the negligent overvaluation. And on that basis, the loss did not fall within the scope of the valuer's duty. Crystal clear. Thanks, Catherine. And we do, of course, have a blog post on this one, which is linked in the show notes. Um, so this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, uh, but when planning this edition of the podcast, I did a quick Google search to see if there were any festive films which related to valuers. Surprisingly, there were not. Um, but here's a random fact for you. Do you remember the house in Love Actually in Wandsworth, the dodgy end, uh, Natalie Martine McCutcheon's house? So can you guess how much that house is worth now? £1.8 million. Crazy. Should have bought in 2003. That would have been a bit early for me to get onto the property, la property ladder, but good to know. In keeping with tangential leaps, perhaps this is a good segue into my quiz question. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is an employee of Santa's. Rudolph was laughed at, called names, and never allowed to join in any games by all of the other reindeer that he worked with. Just before Christmas, Rudolph decides he has had enough. 
which of the following would be Rudolph's best cause of action? Discrimination, unfair dismissal, or private prosecution of two of his colleagues, Dancer and Prancer? Probably the first, Catherine, because the damages are unlimited. It's a discrimination case, is that right? Well, discrimination needs to be on the grounds of a protected characteristic, so it's not clear whether Rudolph's very shiny nose would be covered by the Equalities Act. <laughs> Has he been dismissed? Well, no, he can claim constructive dismissal. Yeah, could he? Has he done that, though? If he walked away before Christmas, he could. Good time to leave, yeah. Yeah. Um, my other question, Catherine, is has yeah. he got two years of employment service for his unfair dismissal rights? That's a good point. Um, but and everyone's right that private prosecution would be the, the least good option. Very good. It would be very dear. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, Tom. Moving on then, thank you Catherine, and making uh, our way through the rest of the podcasting family, we'll move on to Charlotte. I'm counting heads as we uh, go along, not to worry, so I won't be forgetting anyone. Charlotte, over to you. Thank you, John. The case I've selected today is Privy Council decision in Stanford Asset Holdings and Afrasia Bank about Norwich Farm Corps orders. And I am delighted to say that I have managed to find a seasonal film reference to provide a precarious link to this case. (sighs) Which is that the city of Norwich stars in Netflix 2020 epic Jingle Jangle A Christmas Journey? I think I may have missed that one. One to add to your watch list over the holidays. The other two you refer to today, yes. (laughs) I can't believe you don't know The Grinch. (laughs) (laughs) Jingle Jangle, I can forgive. The Grinch, I cannot. (laughs) Anyway, um, bringing things back to order. Um, As our listeners will be aware, a Norwich Pharmacal order is a form of third-party disclosure order. And in this case, the Privy Council held that the Supreme Court of Mauritius was wrong to refuse to grant a Norwich Pharmacal order requiring a Mauritian bank to disclose information about a customer's account to the victims of an alleged fraud to assist them in tracing misappropriated funds. And actually, natural question flowing, Charlotte, this is obviously a Privy Council decision in relation to Mauritius. Could you remind us how um, that's applicable uh, to the um, uh, English court? Yes, John. So um, the Privy Council held that the disclosure order would not conflict with the bank's common law confidentiality duties because Norwich Pharmacal orders are a recognised exception to those duties. The legal system of Mauritius is governed in part by English common law, and so the same principles would apply here. The Privy Council also made some interesting comments on the nature of Norwich Pharmacal jurisdiction and similar bankers' trust orders, which I will share. The Privy Council board referred to the fact that these orders are, um, I quote, exceptional, and this is because they require an innocent third party, in this case the bank, to supply information to a party to whom they would otherwise owe no duty, i.e. the victim of the alleged fraud. However, in the board's view, provided the relevant conditions are satisfied, this should not mean that such orders will only exceptionally be granted. In other words, there's not some exceptionally high hurdle to obtain such an order. So it will be interesting to see if this argument is used in future applications for third-party disclosure orders against banks, but I do note that the advice of the Privy Council is not binding on the courts of England and Wales. So I think it's interesting that this case involved an application to the uh, foreign court for the disclosure order against the foreign bank. I've seen quite a few cases where this type of application has been made against a foreign third-party bank, but to the English court. 
Yes, indeed, Kerry. And when those applications are made to the English court, there are various special considerations which apply, which mean that the English court is perhaps less likely to grant an order in respect of a foreign bank than if the application is made to the foreign court directly. I guess that makes sense. But what's the reasoning in the case law? So it wasn't discussed in the present case, but the assumption seems to be that there is a greater risk that compliance with an English court order will put a foreign bank in breach of local laws and perhaps expose it to financial and or reputational damage. But where the order is made by the bank's domestic court with greater knowledge of local legal and regulatory rules, it's assumed that there's probably a lower risk. Right, if you would like to know more about this case, listeners, then there is a link to our blog post in the show notes. But I will now lighten the legal burden only slightly with my festive quiz question. And I have a civil law special one for you guys here. So in Love Actually, rock star Billy Mack makes a promise to the people of Great Britain that he will get naked if they make his song the Christmas number one. If you purchase his song, do you have an enforceable contract? Does he have to get naked for you? No, <clears throat> because it's... Um... It's equivalent to the old Sponsioni's Ludicry, isn't it? The sort of, um, like a gaming contract, not a serious contract. Uh, I can't remember what the term is, but uh, no, is the answer. Excellent, strong. Intended to create legal relation, legal relationship. Yep, excellent. Both of you should get a mince pie. So, Chitty confirms in Chapter Four, Paragraph Two, Three, Four, um, that contractual intention may be negative um, where a statement is made in jest. So, a joke, as here. Um, at least if that fact is obvious to the person to whom the statement is made. Um, luckily for anyone who bought his single, it's all academic, as he of course did make good on his offer. Very good. Fascinating. <clears throat> Thank you, Fasha. Um, on to you, Tom. Um, apologies if my segue does not parallel your festive puns from last year, but I'll allow you to come up with uh, one on the spot to heal yourself in. Hold yourself in. Thanks, John. So I'll start my case summary today with the lyrics to one of my favourite Christmas songs, which goes follows. So, when you first took my hand on a cold Christmas Eve, you promised me Broadway was waiting for G4S, who won against various claimants in the, in the case I've selected today. It's a strong start, Tom. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, so my film reference is also to Love Actually. And, of course, the case name got me G4S, of course, who are most famous for their security personnel, so also a Love Actually reference for me. Had they been on duty, Little Sam would most likely have been unable to evade at least three Heathrow checkpoints. (laughs) If we leave you with one message today, let it be this. It's not romantic when it's a very serious breach of airport security. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, Tom. The last point is huge, my children. Listen to Tom. So, coming back to the case... Many of our listeners will be following this high-profile securities class action. Uh, The latest instalment relates to an application by the claimants for the disclosure of certain privileged documents by the defendant company. And the high-level outcome is that the High Court refused the claimant's application. To break down the legal theatrics, the claimants argued that they were entitled to the privileged documents on the basis of the so-called shareholder principle, under which a company cannot assert privilege against its shareholders unless the documents were produced for the dominant purpose of litigation between the company and its shareholders. Sharp and blank, right, Tom? Right, indeed, John. But although the court acknowledged that the shareholder principle has been recognised in numerous previous authorities, there you go, it ultimately refused disclosure on case management grounds. Basically, the application was made really late in the day, and only a small proportion of the claimants would be entitled to see the defendant's privileged documents anyway. 
This sounds like quite the legal pantomime. Can you elaborate on the court's views on the shareholder principle? Of course, Kerry. It's a giving time of year. The court made a couple of observations which I think will be of particular interest to banks and other listed companies. First of all, the judge expressed his doubts as the justification for the shareholder principle, but commented that, as a lowly first instance judge, he could not say that the principle did not exist or should be got rid of. Very humble indeed. Too humble. which judge it was. Well, too humble in my view, John, and I will tell you, because Mr Justice Michael Green is actually a Stock King's counsel, so he's doing himself dirty there. Secondly, the judge commented on a few points which he thought were unclear in the case law on the shareholder principle. One of these will be particularly important in a securities class action context because he said that the shareholder principle should apply only to registered shareholders. That means that the principle will not apply where shares are held through the Crest Securities Depository or to those with interest in securities sufficient to bring a claim under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 or FUSMA. So I think this is very significant because the vast majority of transactions in publicly held shares are held in dematerialised form through Crest. So in most Section 90A claims, I think that means claimants will not be able to invoke the shareholder principle to seek to dis- uh, the disclosure of a defendant's privileged documents, even if the principle does exist. I mean, that's exactly right, Kerry. Because she's hit the nail on the head. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) You you did well to navigate the careful dance between companies and the shareholder when it comes to privilege and disclosure. And I understand that there's a link uh, to our blog post on this case in the show notes if our podcasters would like to read more. Now it's your turn, Tom, to take the stage with your festive quiz question. Over to you. Thank you, John. So, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. If Santa truly knows these things, what provisions is he likely to have breached? (laughs) Option A, Section 68 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994, Offensive Aggravated Trespass. Option B, Section 2 of the Protection from Harassment Act 1997, Offensive Harassment. Option C, Section 171 of the Data Protection Act 2018, Offensive Obtaining or Disclosing Personal Data. Or Option D, or 3. It's all three. Yeah, all three. Correct, John. It's not Christmas. It's time to talk to your solicitor. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Tom. Uh, Right, we're near the end of our family festive trip through the case law. Um, And Janelle, welcome. You're uh, first frolic onto the virgin snow as a uh, podcaster. Um, Are we going to step into your Christmas update? Thank you very much, John. Mm. Um, I have a trilogy of decisions showing the English court's approach to granting anti-suit injunctions in support of foreign-suited arbitrations. I bet you were glad you came this afternoon. <laughs> Indeed. And speaking of suits, I have a fun fact about one of the most famous and recognisable suits in a seasonal film, namely the Grinch costume. That's the green fellow, John. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many hours in total do you think it took Jim Carrey to get into that suit over the course of filming? I mean, many, many hours. Many, many is correct. Um, He spent a grand total of 92 days wearing the costume, and it took him three hours before each filming session to get into the suit. So that's 276 hours. Moving seamlessly into my update today, um, earlier this year, Deutsche Bank, Commerzbank, and Unicredit all brought applications for anti-suit injunctions, or ASIs, in the English court against Roskem, a joint venture between Gazprom and Rusgas Dobicha. Good job. What was the uh, name of the defendant in a second one? Ruskas Dobichon. Scott, do you want to see that? I think Tom's Say our resident Russian expert. No, Scott, over Say to you. You're, you're the linguist. Oh, in the absence of an Italian defendant this year, Tom, go ahead. Scott, go on. Ruskas Dobcha. 
Excellent. Sorry, Jamil. Excellent. Um, the background to this is that all three banks have an English law governed contracts with um, Roskem, providing for disputes to be referred to arbitration. However, in breach of the contractually agreed forum, Roskem brought, has brought proceedings in the Russian court. In the cases involving DB and Commerce Bank, the Court of Appeal and the High Court respectively granted ASI's restraining Roskem from bringing proceedings in Russia in breach of English law arbitration clauses, despite the seat of arbitration being in Paris. Is that unexpected, given that the arbitration clauses were governed by English law? Well, yes and no. In general, the English court will ordinarily grant an ASI where a contracting party brings proceedings in a foreign jurisdiction in breach of an exclusive English jurisdiction clause or an arbitration agreement. However, most cases in which ASIs have been granted in support of arbitration have involved an English seat at arbitration. So these decisions are novel because the seat of arbitration here was in Paris. And um, what about the Unicredit case? Well, in the case brought by Unicredit, uh, although the relevant contracts were governed by English law, the court held that the arbitration agreement was governed by French law because the seat of arbitration was in Paris. So on that basis, the court held that England was not the proper place to bring the claim, and so it refused the ASI. So it's not entirely obvious to me why the court reached a different conclusion on the law of the arbitration clause in the Unicredit case. Nor to me, but I understand that Unicredit has been granted permission to appeal by the Court of Appeal, so it will be interesting to see the outcome of this, which will take place in January next year. Now, taking a step back, I think these cases are of particular interest to banks in showing that an ASI can be granted even where there is a foreign seat, though the court will need to be satisfied that England is the proper forum for granting relief. And more broadly, they illustrate the importance of ASIs as a tool to try to ensure that arbitration agreements, and indeed English jurisdiction clauses, are enforced. ASIs have become all the more important in respect of transactions involving Russian parties, given the Russian law um, allows Russian courts to take exclusive jurisdiction over cases which involve sanctions. So a flurry of updates. So if our listeners would like to know more, you can, as always, find a link to our blog post in the show notes. Now, on to your quiz question to tie our segment together, Janelle. We seem to be making great time in getting through our full house today. So my quiz question is based on It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, in December, George Bailey entered into a contract for the purchase of a charming family home in Bedford Falls because of a fraudulent statement made by the seller. After purchasing the home, George employed a builder to carry out extensive renovations, including enhancing the Christmas decorations and installing a festive bell. George later discovered the fraudulent statement was false and decided that he wished to rescind the contract. So could George, in fact, rescind the contract? A, no, because rescission is not an available remedy for misrepresentation. Option B, no, because the third party has acquired rights. C, no, because George has affirmed the contract. D, no, because restitution is impossible. Or E, no, because there is a statutory bar under the Misrepresentation Act of 1967. What do we think? And the answer really know, which you know. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> so full disclosure, I did this question earlier and I got it wrong. So it's not it doesn't look good, does it? Getting the SQE question wrong. Well rescission is available. That's the so I'd knock off A. Yeah. Under misrepresentation. You can, exactly, you can have rescission. Yeah, that's the I, usual I felt remedy. like he'd affirmed the contract, but um, I'd knock that, that off if you got that one wrong. That's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the correct answer is actually D, because uh, he's not allowed to rescind the contract because restitution is impossible. Um, so rescission under common law for fraudulent misrepresentation will only be granted if the parties can be restored to their original positions prior to the formation of the contract. So because George has renovated Bedford Falls, 
this renders uh, rescission impossible. Fun times. Even with an accounting balance. Anyway, fine. I'm also very pleased with those um, antecedent junctions cases because they dovetail with some advice I gave in 2011 to a, an international client when I was living in Russia. <clears throat> Vindicated at last. All right, look, thank you all indeed very much. Uh, excellent work in getting us to this point, and thank you for your case updates and comical quiz questions. I think that just leaves me to close this festive special and wish you well. Well, John, hang on, hang on a second. Uh, I've got, I've got this horrible feeling. I've got a feeling, I've got a feeling that we didn't do something. No, no, you just feel that way because we've been in such a hurry. We took care of everything. I think we really did. Did I turn off the coffee? What are you talking about? We didn't have any coffee, only uh, mulled wine. Did you lock up? Yes. Did you close the garage? Yes, I certainly did, Kay. What else could no, we be No, that, that's not it. What else is there? Scott! Guys, I can't believe you almost forgot about me. Uh, unlike Kevin in Home Alone, I'm not even being treated to a stay in New York's Plaza Hotel on John's credit card this year. <laughs> but all I get to do is provide another festive case update. That's Home Alone 2, Scott. It is. Home Alone 1. Congratulations, John. You know that film. <laughs> Very good. Although the premise being the same. Um, so... Uh, Scott, I'm so sorry. I had an odd feeling we were forgetting something. I might not want to stay now, uh, Carrie, after this treatment. Uh, I ought to say no. Maybe it's cold outside. Come on, have the last man's pie. I shall, I shall. Um, one more pie and permission, if I am allowed, Kerry, to deploy some pop culture. Yes, I will grant you this concession, Scott. Perfect. So our final case for today is Loralee Financing and Credit Suisse, which is an important decision for financial institutions and for the law of misrepresentation. And I should add that the judgment was handed down by the wonderful Mrs. Justice Cockerell, who has once again managed to weave a comedy popular culture reference into her judgment to make sure we are paying attention and keeping us entertained. As those who have been listening to the podcast for a while will know, there's been some mixed case law on implied misrepresentations and whether or not a claimant must prove that they were consciously aware of the representation being made at the time. In this case, the High Court confirmed that a claimant's conscious awareness or understanding of an implied representation is an essential element for a claim in misrep. Forgive my lack of excitement, Scott, but it did seem a little bit obvious, didn't it, that a party alleging to have relied upon a, a representation must also be able to demonstrate that it was aware of the representation being made. But I know there has been a healthy debate on this topic. As always, John, you were of course right, but Mrs Justice Cockerell previously sought to quash this uncertainty with her decision in Leeds and Barclays from a couple of years ago. However, that did not quash the debate which remained ongoing, and so the present decision provides additional welcome clarity on the issues. Very briefly on the facts, uh, Loralee paid US $100 million to the bank for certain notes back in 20 2007, and after the financial crisis, sought to reclaim its losses, alleging that the bank made false representations about the notes. And the court found that the relevant representations were not made, is that right? That's right, John. But then the court went on to conduct a detailed analysis of reliance, and in particular, the extent to which the representation must operate on the claimant's mind. As I have said, the court confirmed that to satisfy the requirements of reliance, the representee must be aware of the representation and have it actively present to their mind when they act on it. The key point underpinning this analysis is that a representation must cause a party to be induced into making a transaction. So there are two separate stages. Firstly, whether a representation is actually made. And then secondly, whether that representation induces a party to enter into the contract. 
The court described the awareness requirement as the necessary bridge between the two stages of representation and inducement, and said that this bridge is crucial for any misrepresentation claim. In particular, the court was keen to emphasize that the awareness understanding bridge is distinct from assumption. The court dismissed the idea that mere assumption based on the representative's conduct is adequate to prove reliance, however obvious the representation. While the court conceded that the more obvious the representation, the more likely it is that the representee would have understood it to have been made, this does not remove the necessary requirement to evidence such understanding. I suppose that if assumption was enough, then it would effectively collapse the two stages of representation and inducement into one? Yes, Kerry, and that is essentially what the claimants were trying to argue. And so, Scott, I know you're desperate to tell us what Mrs Justice Cockrell thought about that idea. I am indeed, Kerry. Mrs Justice Cockrell joked that the claimant was perhaps inspired by the Spice Girls case, which was the subject of great discussion at trial, such that the two stages would become one. Oh, that's brilliant. Well yeah, I'll love it. Aprilla and Spice Girls for the case, right? That's exactly right, John. Yeah, so first Pretty Women and now the Spice Girls. Well done, Mrs Justice Cockrell. And I believe we have a blog post for this one. We do indeed, and you'll find the link in the show notes. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, sorry, I mean Scott. Uh, sorry about that. Now time for you to round off our case law segment with your quiz questions, saving as ever the best for last. So my question is musically themed, again, inspired by the seminal Juan classic, Last Christmas. So in the song, George Michael notes, Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, and the very next day, you gave it away. So my question is, in this circumstance, what has George Michael lost? Has he lost A, a show as an action, B, an asset, or C, nothing, just his dignity? Any answers? Forgotten the question. <laughs> but, hey, um, dignity. Was the heart being held in trust? So, unless we're talking literally here about a black market and organ <laughs> smuggling, I have interpreted the giving away of said heart in a metaphorical sense, in which case the answer would indeed be C, just his dignity, uh, because it is accordingly not a chosen action, or indeed chosen possession for that matter, as it's not a right to obtain a sum or recover damages, nor is it capable of physical transfer. Uh, it's not an asset, unless we are calling love an intangible asset, which some may do. Uh, so it's likely that George has just sadly lost the opportunity cost for love, as is in this case. Scott, do you know, do you know George Michael's birth name? No, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. It is indeed, John. It is George Paniotti, which reminds me that it's now December and I still Paniotta do my Christmas shopping. Uh, well, podcasters, wrapping up this, uh, this afternoon's uh, festive podcast, uh, thank you very much to all of our uh, guest uh, uh, children and uh, visitors and family, and thank you all very much for coming. Uh, peace and prosperity uh, to each of you, uh, our wonderful podcasters, and um, festive blessings in you and your families. And thank you very much indeed to... Uh, our new uh, um, helper on this show, Noor, uh, from Behind the Glass. So welcome and thank you. <laughs>